See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain every man of you in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to be to God. I have enjoyed cooking since I was young. During summer breaks from school, typically both of my parents worked, and so I was left to prepare lunch for myself and my two younger brothers. Now, this was always uh, kind of interesting because things at my house were kind of haphazard and chaotic. You never knew what food might be on hand or might not be on hand. It just is not the same to make Kraft macaroni and cheese without milk or butter. So you had to be creative. I became the queen of casseroles. And basically that meant just taking anything that existed in the cupboard and putting it together and calling it a casserole. Now, it frustrated me because I could never bake. Things like cookies and cakes require specific ingredients. You can't just go without those things. And so I could never accomplish that, and that was always frustrating. But I loved to go visit my grandparents' house. It was always a place that I felt secure and at peace. You could always count on it to be quiet and clean, and they had every food item imaginable. Grandma could ask me what I wanted to make, and no matter if I said cakes or cookies or waffles, it seemed like she had everything on hand to accomplish it. Now, when I went to visit them, sometimes for fun, I used to organize her pantry. I know that sounds silly, but I would take everything out and organize it according to my own thoughts And I'd put the staples like flour and sugar together. I'd put the canned goods and then things like jello and, you know, pudding mixes together. Um, Things like vegetables. I would organize the good vegetables up front, like green beans and corn, and put the less desirables like peas and my grandfather's favorite hominy at the very back. And of course, chocolate pudding had a premier spot up front just so that my grandma might see it and understand that it would be a good idea to make that. Now, I love doing that. And for whatever reason, it just gave me a a good feeling, a, a sense of well-being. And I'm sure as a little girl, I was compensating for a sense of inconsistency from home and Having all that food and organized and every ingredient just, it felt good to me. I was already starting to see having enough and put that with a sense of my identity and a sense of well-being and peace. Now, as a little girl, I didn't realize that my well-being wasn't 
made by the amount of food at my grandparents' house. It was because I was with my grandparents. The fact that I was with them meant that all of my needs were taken care of. But somewhere deep inside, at a very subconscious level, I I started to kind of mix those messages. As I grew older and had control of my own kitchen, I made sure I had every ingredient on hand. But you know, if you use your one can of green beans, you're out. And so you need two cans at least. But over time, and again, I wasn't intentionally thinking about this, but over time I noticed that if you had two cans of green beans and you used one, you were dangerously close to running out again. And so I started to have three, four, or more items of everything in my pantry. Things started going out of date and expiring because I had so much. I finally had to face what had been going on in my psyche for far too long when we moved to a house with a really small pantry. At the time, I was in Disciple Bible Study, And we were in the Old Testament and looking at these kind of passages where God is leading the Hebrew people through the wilderness. And every day they would gather food and it would be enough for that day. And the message was that God would provide and they could trust in their relationship with God to be all that they needed. When we put our identity in having, we'll never have enough. And what we do have will go bad or expire or wear out or need to be replaced. That's not our sense of identity. To some degree, we also do the same thing with doing. Have you ever noticed that when somebody asks the question, how are you? A very typical response is busy, very busy. Now, I know that the The question, how are you, has really become far more of a a general greeting, and we really don't expect people to elaborate. But if you look at the question itself, how are you, it's a question as to our state of being. And we typically respond with what we're doing, as if what we do makes us who we are. We have a tendency to think that the more we do or the things that we do that are right, more things that we do are right, make us better people. And we can tend to reverse it as well. If we don't do enough or we make mistakes, we can tend to feel bad about ourselves. Recently, uh, our daughter Hannah texted me and she asked if I had any headache medicine. We were both at work at the time, and so I found some ibuprofen that I was going to take over her in threefold, but I thought it'd be a nice gesture to put together some snacks and take that along with the medicine. And so I have this little plastic box in my office that I keep snacks on hand. And so I pulled out some energy bars and some candy and some drink mixes that you put in a bottle of water. I put all that in a little bag, and I took it over to threefold to her. And about 30 minutes later, she called me, and I thought it was to say thanks, and she did, but also to tell me that most of the things that I'd brought over to her were between two and four years past their expiration date. (laughs) Apparently, I still have a tendency to hold on to things too long, and so we laughed about it, and I apologized, 
But almost immediately, I said, don't tell anybody. Because I had this sort of sense that I don't want people to think I'm a bad mom. Now, a goofy mistake like that is not what defines me as a mother or as a person. Hannah doesn't think less of me as a mother, although I do think she's going to be checking the expiration date on things I give her from now on. What I do doesn't define me. What I have doesn't define me. Too often, we make those kind of substitutions to gain control over our lives or as kind of security blankets, and yet we'll never find real peace. We'll never have that real sense of who we are if we lean on things. It's not about having. It's not about doing. It's about being, being the children of God. This morning, I'm going to bring to a conclusion our sermon series, Telling the Story. For several weeks now, we've been looking at important stories of the Bible that help to shape our faith. Now, we're ending the sermon series today, but we're going to keep with that theme through the rest of the year. We're going to keep looking at stories that make us who we are, stories that we all need to know and learn This morning, we're looking at a very important story from our heritage. It happens just after God used Moses to deliver the Hebrew people from slavery and captivity in Egypt and set them free. He brought them through the Red Sea, and before they went into the Promised Land, they would spend years in the wilderness. Now, there, uh, it's a very rugged, harsh environment And initially, they were very excited about escaping slavery, but it wasn't too long before they were worried about their own survival in the desert. And so they were crying out to God. They wanted uh, for the things that they no longer had. And what God was trying to do was teach them a lesson about who they were, that they were set free. And it wasn't about what they had or what they did It was about who they were as the people of God and how important that connection was uh, for their history. I think there are three things that we can learn from this and three things I want to discuss this morning to help us really find comfort and true peace of mind in who we were meant to be. The first is knowing that God cares for our needs. This May, we'll be taking another trip to the Holy Land. Now, there are a few spots left. If you're interested, you can go on to our website. But this will be my fourth time to go to the Holy Land, and each time has been better than the last. When you go to the Holy Land, it's not so much a vacation as it is living a Bible study. Now, it's wonderful there. The sites are beautiful. The people are wonderful, and the food is great. But it's like you're embedded in the best Bible study you've ever taken. And scriptures that are familiar to you kind of come to mind when you visit certain places, and other places will completely change the way you view certain Bible passages. One of those places for me was in the southern part of Israel, down around the Dead Sea and Jericho. It was there that the psalmist wrote the 23rd Psalm, And it's an area that's 
referred to in the Bible as the wilderness. It's a desert. Now, not with flowing sand dunes, but with rocks. Everywhere you can see, it's harsh. There's very little food and water there. But all the time growing up, I thought of the 23rd Psalm and pictured these beautiful pastoral scenes in my mind. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in the green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Now, I grew up in Ohio. And so when I heard or read those words, I imagined lush green meadows with a quaint little pond in the middle where the farmer could set the sheep free in the morning into a fenced pasture and they could be on their own safely because they had all they needed. But that's not what the psalmist is describing. He's describing an environment that's so harsh that the sheep wouldn't be able to find any food or water whatsoever, and that's the point. It's one thing to be in an area where all of our needs, you know, we have an abundance God is still there guiding us, but sometimes we can forget. We trust in the abundance of stuff. The psalmist is writing in an area where there's very little rain. And when the rain does come, it can cause terrible flooding. And so the sheep are dependent upon the shepherd to lead them to places where it's safe to drink and find water. Now, when you go to this area, all you see is rock. You don't see any green meadows or pastures. You see a few sprigs of grass over here or over there. The sheep completely depend upon the shepherd to lead them to where they can find something to eat. It's all about this this relationship that we are called to have with God, that we depend on God for all of our needs. It was this wilderness area, an area very similar to it, that the Hebrew people and Moses were before they entered into the promised land. It was an area that was rugged and desolate. And you can understand why they had been excited, but now they were crying out, you led us from slavery to just die here in the desert? They didn't see any resources. And so God provided water from the rock. And every single evening, God sent quail for them to have meat every day, and then manna or bread every morning. And God instructed them, gather just what you need, just what you can eat this day. Don't gather any more than that, just what you need this day. But can you imagine what happened there? You're in the wilderness. All you see is rock. And right then, in that moment, you see food ahead of you. And so some of them had a tendency to do what I think some of us might do, is you see that and you gather because you don't know it'll be there tomorrow. And so they gathered too much. And for those that did, they found that it developed worms and it went rotten. It had a shelf life of one day. And the reason was because God wanted them to understand that in that moment, they had all they needed and they needed to trust God for tomorrow and not go with that tendency, well, I'll take care of it myself because so many times that can go bad. It's an important lesson for them in the desolate area of the wilderness. And it was probably easier to learn it there than 
before they went to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They would need that relationship with God to be able to stay close and lead in that same fashion. It's important for us to remember as well. Second, God provides us rest. At the beginning of the passage that was read this morning, it starts off with God giving a Sabbath or rest to the people and to us. Have you ever thought about the Sabbath? It's an ancient concept for us. It dates back to the very beginning of Scripture to Genesis in the creation story. It starts off with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it continues on each day. It talks about what God created. On that very first day, God separated the light from the darkness. And at the end of that day, God looked at what he had created and declared that it was good. On the second day, God created. And at the end of the day, he looked upon that creation and declared again, it was good. Every single day, he worked to create the universe. And at the end of every day, God declared it to be good. On the sixth day, God created humanity. Male and female were created in the image of God. And God blessed them and gave them dominion over all the living things of the earth. And at the end of that day, God looked at all that had been created and declared that it was very good. And so on the seventh day, God rested from the work of creation. Now, I think that sometimes in our minds, we don't have the right thought of that word rest. Uh, We don't translate it well. It doesn't mean that God was worn out and tired on the seventh day, and he had to, you know, take a rest. It meant, the word means stopping of work, and intentionally celebrating or honoring the Sabbath or uh, the seventh day. God created a seventh day to be a holy day for us. God didn't need that. And yet God celebrated it so that we would know what that looked like. We are called to have moments, to have time that, that we rest. We stop what we're doing and we simply remember how good creation is. We remember our relationship with God, and and instead of focusing on what we have or what we're doing, we focus on who we are in God. For the past several weeks, we've been looking at excerpts from Thomas Friedman's book, Thank You for Being Late. I've loved reading that book. The title comes from the author's idea and realization that he enjoyed when people were late to any of his appointments or meetings because their delay gave him a few unscripted, unplanned moments that he wouldn't have had otherwise. And as he discusses how fast-paced this world has become, he talks about how much more important those moments, kind of Sabbath moments, are than ever before. Now, if you think about the Hebrew people, think about how hard their life was. Now, you might think about nomadic tribes today or Bedouin, and 
shepherding tribes in that part of the world, I think that their lives are difficult, but probably far more simple. They, they work with their, their flocks, their family. Compare that to our lives with our drive to work, our commute, our homes that we have to keep up, raising of the kids and groceries and bills and all the stuff we own and all the stuff we do. God wanted these people to take a day of rest and to honor uh, God and, and be with God. What do you think God wants for us? What do you think God would have us do in our complicated busyness How are we passing that lesson of the Sabbath on to our children? How are we demonstrating it to family and friends? In the Thomas Friedman book, he uses a quote by the Surgeon General and talks about the mechanics of the heart. And it says, the heart pumps in two cycles, systole, when it contracts, and diastole, when it relaxes. And one of the things that we often think is that contraction is the most important phase because that is what gets the blood pushed out everywhere around your body. But you realize when you study medicine that it's in diastole, when the heart relaxes, that the coronary blood vessels fill and supply the heart muscle with the life-saving, sustaining oxygen that it needs. So without diastole, there can be no systole. Without relaxation, there can be no contraction. How do you practice relaxation in your life so that you can be filled with the life-giving, sustaining presence of God? This coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of Lent. Lent is the 40 days before Easter, not counting Sundays. And it's a time that we prepare ourselves for the celebration of Easter. Now, many years ago, one of my aunts threw a slumber party for me at her house. And many of my friends were over there. And it was early in the spring, and my best friend from childhood, Jody, was there. And I encouraged Jody to try some of the candy that my Aunt Pam had set out. And Jody politely refused. And so as her best friend, thinking I knew what was best for her, I strongly encouraged her all the more. And finally, she told me that she had given up candy for Lent. Now, Jody was part of the Brethren Church in Ohio, and I was part of the Methodist Church. But I confess that I had no clue what it meant to give up something for Lent. And so Jody, my junior high best friend taught to me what it meant to practice that and to practice setting aside time and and doing that. And so all these years later, for most of the years, I've tried to give up something for Lent. And typically, it's something very insignificant, something like Diet Coke or giving up fast food or chocolate. And what I found every single year is that I put far too much comfort and importance on the insignificant things of life. And so it's very meaningful for for me. Even though it seems kind of trite and insignificant, it's been an important practice for my life. I know that for some people, they 
adopt the practice of taking something on during Lent because that might have a less negative connotation than giving something up. But I want to encourage you to think of it differently. I think all of us here, if we were to really analyze our lives, we probably have too much stuff at home and too much busyness in our lives. And Sabbath moments are all about saying no to taking on more. And so this Lent, I want to encourage you maybe to give up something insignificant and see what that means to your life, but also to give up something very important, to set aside time to just be with God. Set aside 10 to 15 moments each day to remember it's not about having or doing It's about being with God. Make time every day. Set aside that moment to be with God. And third, God helps us to be who we really are. You know, the circumstances in our lives don't have to define us. Christ came to set us free from everything that would hold us back. Christ came to release us from this idea that we, it's what we have or don't have that makes us who we are. Christ came to set us free from this idea that if we just do enough, we'll be okay. Or we have to overcome the mistakes that we've made, and so we have to do more stuff. It's not about that. Christ came to remind us that we're the children of God. It's who we are. We'll make mistakes in life. We'll find failures but it's not the circumstances that define us. Like several of you, I imagine, I've been watching the Olympics here lately. I love the Winter Olympics. If I could choose any sport that I would have won my gold medal in, it would be speed skating. Um, I've never really skated all that much, but I just love the sport. I used to have dreams at night of myself as Bonnie Blair, And I could do that cool foot-over-foot crossover work and the turns that they make look so easy. I love that sport. And so I've been watching that. And a few days ago, I saw an interview that they were having with Dan Jansen. You might remember that it was back in 1988 that Dan Jansen was the hands-down favorite for the 500 and 1,000-meter races. This Wednesday, February 14th, Uh, will be the 30th anniversary of his 500-meter race and also uh, the death of his sister, Jane. It was on the morning of his 500-meter race, he was the favorite to win that he got the call that his older sister was dying from cancer. She had been battling leukemia for about a year And she had encouraged him to go to the Olympics. In fact, she was the one who encouraged him to stay with speed skating. And so he talked with her on the phone, although by that time she wasn't able to respond. A couple hours later, he called back home and found out that she had passed away. His family told him that he needed to stay there. It's what Jane wanted, and that he needed to stay and race that afternoon in the 500. And so that's what he did. Initially, the gun sounded and he had a false start and that kind of threw him off. But the second start was good. And he came to the very first turn and he fell and slid into the the padding on the side of the wall. 
He was disqualified. After that race, he flew home for Jane's funeral, and he returned a few days later to race in the 1,000 meters. And again, he was the favorite. He started the race well, and he was on world record pace, but with just about 200 meters to go, he slipped and fell again. He returned home, and he had no medals to show for that Olympics, but he trained He kept competing around the world, and he came back four years later in 1992 in France, and again, he was the favorite for both the 500 and the 1,000 meters, but it was four years and a day after his sister Jane had passed away, and and somehow in those races, he just wasn't there, and so he didn't place in either, either event. Well, two years later was... The next Winter Olympics, it's when they changed and altered between Winter and Summer Olympics on different years. And so two years later, he came back for what he knew would be his final Olympics in 1994. Now, before the 1994 Olympics, he had set seven world records. He was the favorite. He was the only skater to achieve less than 36 seconds in the 500 meters, and he had done it four times by 1994. And so he gets to the the race, and he starts in the 500, and somewhere midway, he just kind of slips and falls back, and he doesn't place at all. And so the very last race of his career, the 1,000 meters, it wasn't his best race by that time, and yet... He knew that it would be his last time. And I think that some people around the world were almost hesitant to watch him race by this time because everyone knew his story and they knew how many times they had kind of gotten their hopes up for him and that had gone away. And so the 1,000 meters starts and halfway through the race, he kind of slips, but he regains himself. He finishes, gets the gold, and sets a brand new world record And you might remember that he skates over to the side and he picks up his baby daughter, Jane, and does a victory lap with her. Now, for Dan Jansen, his identity was never made when he won that gold medal, just like it wasn't lost when he didn't win. It wasn't the many failures he experienced at the Olympics or the time that he finally won that gave him peace of mind or real security. Not to be sure, he was frustrated and disappointed at every loss. He had worked so hard. But he came from a deeply religious and loving family. And when you have experienced the death of a loved one, you know that things like winning or losing a race just aren't the most important things in life. His identity was found in his relationship with God, his family, and with Jane. He knew that those were everlasting. We are more than the circumstances of life. We are more than what we have or don't have or what we do. It's about who we are as the children of God. Make time to be with God and be reminded of how secure you are with God. And that is our story to tell. It's in the name of the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen.